Welcome to the Mutual Success Podcast, where we hear how entrepreneurs and extraordinary sales professionals are helping each other, their clients, their communities, and maybe even saving the world. I had a great time interviewing Ben Holmes, CEO and founder of Nanocon, a revolutionary company that is repairing people's knee cartilage in a way that is far superior to any other approach that's ever been taken in the history of mankind. You'll find Ben is a very interesting, engaging guy who's got a lot of great experience starting when he was young, and he's done everything he can to build a company that helps people's quality of life well into their later years, despite uh, the inevitable aging of our joints and other aches and pains. I had a great time talking to him, and I know you're going to enjoy listening to uh, our little interview. Thanks for tuning in and uh, listen to Ben Holmes. Ben, good to see you today. Yeah, good to see you too, Stephen. Happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I'm a little bit nervous since this is my inaugural podcast of the uh, Mutual Success <laughs> series. And, um, you know, you, I'm really excited that I was able to meet you in, in uh, your investment presentation. And, um, find out more about you as, as I have. Um, so hopefully today we'll be spending a few minutes talking about your background since, you know, one of my main interests is as, as a successful entrepreneur at such an early stages, how you got there, how you began to build your ethical framework, uh, a little bit about challenges that, that you've had um, in, in those regards. Talk about your uh, company, the problems that you address, uh, how you've gone about doing it, and, uh, and last but not least, the investment proposition and how it um, aims to create not just a, a great company supporting uh, yourself and, and employees, uh, as well as you know other stakeholders such as the doctors, but you know the people that, that you're going to be treating to bring them a lot of wealth as time goes on in different ways. So uh, why don't we start off by uh, talking for a few minutes about your background and what, what got you interested in what I see, you know, on the surface and what we've talked about so far is uh, ethics, engineering, uh, healthcare, and entrepreneurship. Absolutely. Yeah. Happy to get right into it. Um, and by the way, I just want to say I'm very honored to be uh, your first guest. <laughs> so uh, happy to be helping you kick off this, this you know, this little project here, Stephen. Um, yeah, so my background has Thank primarily you. been as a, a you know a scientist and a, and a researcher. Um, my undergraduate degree was in mechanical engineering. Um, I always knew that I wanted to do something in uh, you know medical devices or in biotech. Uh, but after four years of of engineering, I, I was kind of done with school for a little while. So. I went to go work for, uh, you know, a, a typical kind of large design build construction firm. So, I mean, you see these all over New York, you see them all over any city. I mean, they're, you know, large companies that you one would hire to basically develop property and build, you know, a large complex project like a, like a, you know, apartment building or, or retail high rise or, you know, those types of projects. And, uh, you know, I very quickly, um, hated it <laughs> to basically put it bluntly um you know and i think i think that uh you know it's important work i mean we need we certainly need people um that are you know knowledgeable and highly skilled and technical to do all types of things in this world but i just i just immediately knew that it was not going to fulfill me in any kind of deeper way and that was something that was mm. you know honestly kind of important to me or or maybe i always knew it was important to me but i like i said i i kind of put it on the back burner because uh, i just you know 
was tired of school and needed a break. So, um, you know, after a shorter break than I had planned, um, I started to think about, you know, how could I really kind of get into the medical space and, you know, really uh, entry level positions require a master's degree. So I kind of thought to myself, okay, uh, you know, I'll go back to grad school, uh, you know, I'll get a master's degree and then I'll go work for, you know, like a Pfizer or a Medtronic or depending on the work I end up doing, you know, go work for a big company and, and you know, be part of the team that designs new medical products. And where things kind of surprised me again um, was after about a year of working in a lab uh, at the George Washington University uh, that was doing what's called tissue engineering. Uh, and it was one of the fields that I was interested in. And, but I, I kind of applied to programs all over the country that were doing all kinds of different stuff because I frankly was a little bit directionless. I just I wanted to get into the space and I was like, there's a handful of things that I might be interested in doing. And I just happened to end up, you know, at GW and in, in this lab doing tissue engineering. And so for those that aren't familiar, I mean, it's kind of what it sounds like. It's basically rebuilding body parts. So, you know, our lab was particularly focused on essentially trying to design materials you know, polymers using natural materials, using nanomaterials, basically anything we could sort of get our hands on to try to create constructs that would actually uh, influence cells to regrow tissue. And, you know, in our case, we were working a lot with stem cells. So so trying to create these, these structures, which are referred to as scaffolds. So the technical term is scaffolding. Uh, and in the tissue engineering context, a scaffold is any structure that helps, helps guide cellular growth and mature tissue development. So we were, you know, designing scaffolds to try to regenerate bone and cartilage and really looking at joint health um, as an application of tissue engineering. And, you know, after about a year and a half of doing that work, um, I just really fell in love with it. And I really kind of fell in love with uh, research and development. And so, um, you know, I was very happy that my uh, professor was happy with the work that I was doing and was willing to take me on as a PhD student. Um, so then I became a PhD student and, and worked on a variety of projects, uh, you know, and kind of delved much deeper into the space. Um, and what I kind of found was as I got deeper into the research side, you know, I, I did realize that I didn't want to be in academia. Uh, again, not this is not any type of a value statement or a judgment statement, but really, I mean, the point of academia is to, you know, develop these technologies at a really, really early stage, disseminate the information about what they've developed, and then move on to the next project. And so I, I kind of looked at that and I thought, wow, we're doing this incredible work. And the ultimate goal of this work is just to publish some papers and then maybe help my, my professor get another research grant, you know, to, to do another project to just kind of move on. And I kind of felt like I'd really love to see this stuff actually reach the clinic and actually treat patients, um, you know, actually turn into something that's actually going to benefit real people, which should be the ultimate goal. And so that was really what kind of led me to entrepreneurship. Um, you know, as, as a, as a path for me and a path for the work we were doing, um, you know, as I said, you know, academia and laboratory environments, I mean, there certainly are exceptions. There are labs that are very, very good at spinning up technology and, and actually standing up companies to, to commercialize the technology, but there's really only a few of them, I would say. Uh, and so for the most part, you need, you either need to have something that is so groundbreaking that a, a, a major five, you know, fortune 500 company is willing to take it on and then develop it into a product, or you have to do a startup. Because for the most part, um, you know, large companies in the space are not in the business of really developing new technologies from the ground up. So, you know, certainly people that are not knowledgeable in biotech entrepreneurship have asked me, you know, why isn't Stryker or Smith and Nephew or Medtronic just licensing this now? And it's because they're really not set up to take the risk of early development. And, 
And they're not set up from a financial perspective to actually wait the amount of time it takes to, to build these things into products, to test them, to get clinical data, to get FDA approval. And so that was really kind of what I was faced with. You know, like you, you, know, you mentioned ethical capital a couple of times now. I mean, from an ethical standpoint, if I was if I really cared about seeing that end result of this going into people and actually impacting them, really, there was no other option other than to be an entrepreneur and actually build the company. So. I certainly will say. Right. If I could pause, if I, if yeah, I could just please. pause you for one second. Your 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 thirst for uh, the sustained attention of a project that takes it to the very end reminds me of one thing I saw in your bio, which uh, you were an Eagle Scout. So to <laughs> yes. me, that's that's literally doing something where you bring it to fruition for the greater community in a way that hey, God bless uh, academics, and it's necessary for people that fits into. To, but in your case, you have this longer term view that, uh, you know, made it ethical for you to be a good steward to what your intentions yeah. were, right? I'm really glad you brought that up because, yeah, I, I do think that um, being an Eagle Scout is something that actually has kind of informed this approach that I've taken to, to life and also to this project. Um, you know, for those who aren't familiar, um, you know, Eagle Scout is the highest rank in the Boy Scouts of America. And in order to become an Eagle Scout, you have to basically undertake uh, a community development project, um, you know, from conception to, to execution to finish. And it's you're required to have uh, 100 man hours uh, minimum to complete the project. And actually, it's it still is a point of uh, of um, I don't want to say contention, but there's a, a lot of, uh, you know, joking among my friend group to this day because uh, our project actually ended up taking 600 man hours. So, uh, you know, def definitely we, we ended up really overachieving, I think. Uh, and I don't necessarily know if that, that ended up being the best decision. But no, it was like it was truly a character building kind of experience. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I think that that sort of, um, you know, being able to take the long view, but then also being able to kind of manage and adapt and and really kind of keep your eye on the prize in, ter in terms of what is what is the point of this. Um, you know, I, I think Steve Blank is someone also who talks really eloquently about this. And, you know, he's a very successful software entrepreneur, but also he helped develop the National Science Foundation's i program, which is actually a program that we went through mm -hmm. when we first started the company. And so i is basically like a, like an accelerator or they even sometimes refer to it as a pre-accelerator that the National Science Foundation runs. And the idea is that it takes technical people that have invented a technology and it teaches them how to how to be business minded and think like an entrepreneur. Um, and Steve Blank is someone who always says in his coursework that, you know, being an entrepreneur and building a company, you know, just on paper, it's one of the hardest ways to make money. Um, if all you care about is making money, uh, there's there's much better professions um, to do that. Uh, and and he talks a lot about how like making money, at least for the entrepreneur, the people building the company, is almost uh, you know it's almost a side effect because really. The true the true goal is to is to build something that goes into the market and then creates value for the people that that use it. And in our case, that value is, you know, much much better out, outcomes for people that suffer from knee cartilage damage, whether it's a traumatic injury or osteoarthritis, which is frankly going to be the majority of our patients. Okay, hold on a second. Hold on. Let's <laughs> let's talk about the problem first before we get into yes. the grand climax. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> so yeah. let let let's talk about cartilage because it's a really really special material that does uh, some really important things. And it's got some uh, mechanical properties 
that make it perfect for what it does, but it also, because of those same properties, makes it very difficult to repair. So talk about the problem of cartilage, specifically in the knee, which is what the area you're working yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so our skeletal system is, is very complex mechanically, and it's made up primarily of two categories of tissue. There's hard tissue, and so that's bone or bone analogous tissues that have, uh, you know, calcium in them that essentially gives them their, their, you know, hard, durable properties. And then there's soft tissue. Uh, and soft tissues are all generally considered, car you know, cartilaginous. So they're all referred to something called, that's referred to as cartilage. Uh, there's different types of cartilage uh, and, and different types of cartilage perform different functions. So like your nose and ears are made of cartilage, you know, the, the tendons and ligaments, which are basically what, what attaches muscles to bone or attaches bones to each other. Those are type of cartilage. And then as you pointed out, especially in joints, there's something that's, that's referred to as articular cartilage or sometimes called hyaline cartilage as well. And so hyaline cartilage is um, the cartilage that makes the surface of the joint. So, you know, in the hip, in the knee, in the ankle, you know, in your hands, in your feet, all of the joints are not just bones that touch each other. The bones are capped by this cartilage surface. That's anywhere from like, you know, one millimeter to several millimeters thick. So it's a relatively thin tissue, but it creates this surface. And as you pointed out, cartilage has very specialized, you know, especially articular cartilage has very specialized mechanical properties. So it's designed to both act as a shock absorber. Um, so it allows the joint to like undergo impact and the bones don't immediately break or get damaged. And then the cartilage also is, you know, provides a low friction surface, which means especially in something like the knee, you can have impact and sliding. So the knee can be, you know, it wants to be in motion um, and can withstand, you know, millions and millions of, of cycles, which is sort of sort of remarkable. But because of that, there are there are things biologically about cartilage tissues that, that really limit them, you know, as people live a longer life and put more wear and tear on their joints and, and primarily Articular cartilage is, is what's referred to as avascular, which means that it literally has no blood vessels in it. And, uh, you know, the, the kind of thought is that from an evolutionary perspective, that means that cartilage can withstand these impacts um, and that and that mostly uh, um, the exchange between the cells that are alive in cartilage, you know, how they get food and how they expel waste is sort of just through diffusion. So like through the joint fluid that's in the joint space. But the reason that's important is because is that the synovial fluid? Yeah, the synovial, synovial fluid. Yeah, the synovial fluid. So, you know, the inside of the joint is also full of this, literally a fluid called synovial fluid. And yeah, so basically pressure causes fluid to, to you know, basically move in and out of the tissue rather than the way that literally the rest of your body works, which is that you have a network of blood vessels. Um, and so because of that, cartilage also has very few cells in it. It's actually like one of the the least densely populated tissues in the body. And those two things basically mean that cartilage, unlike other tissues, has no capacity to heal itself. So like you cut yourself, you know, you might bleed, it might hurt, but the wound closes up and new skin forms. Cartilage literally can't do that, even with a small injury or, or, or defect. And that means that certainly if you hurt yourself, so if you fall and you twist your, twist your knee or you get in an accident, you tear a piece of the cartilage off, it's, it's gone. Um, but in our arthritic patients, which is really the, the bulk of, of the people that are getting these cartilage injuries, uh, it's a slower process, but the result is the same. You know, mechanical wear over time causes these, these divots or these potholes to form in the cartilage. And there's just, the body has no ability to heal that hole. And so the hole eventually gets big enough 
and people start to feel pain and stiffness in their knee, they go to the doctor, they get imaged or, or they get scoped. Um, and the doctor finds this big pothole and refers them to a surgeon to get it fixed. Because really at that point, your, your options are, are, you know, just be on pain medication until the damage gets so severe that you need a knee replacement. Uh, there are some things like uh, injections. So there's hyaluronic acid injections. Um, there's another thing that's become popular is PRP, which is platelet-rich plasma. I mean, these are things that basically kind of mitigate the pain and can kind of uh, uh, reduce inflammation, but they don't do anything to rebuild that pothole. So the problem still persists. Um, and then there's there's some things on the market now to try to actually rebuild the cartilage, but they they really entail the grafting of either, of either uh, live tissue from a cadaver so, I mean, literally patients uh, will get on an organ donor list and they'll wait for an organ donor to come up that they can they can get cartilage. And that could take up to a year um, to get that as a treatment. Uh, and then there are these cell therapy products. So, so there are some companies that have tried to develop these, these um, cell therapies where they try to put live cells into the joint to try to grow the cartilage, but they don't really work very well. Uh, and then also they're extremely expensive. So, uh, you know, they're anywhere from $10,000 to $60,000 for the most expensive one. Uh, and that's just for the treatment. That's not for the, the surgery. That's not for, you know, the hospital stay. That's, that's literally just the cost of the therapy. And for context, you know, a knee replacement costs like around five or $6,000. So, you know, in a, in a world where people are having a lot of pain, they're sometimes going through years of multiple treatments uh, to try to, to try to, really just slow the cartilage damage. And then eventually they're going to get to a point where they need a knee replacement anyway. I mean, that's creating a lot of cost for the patient. That's a lot of like, you know, lost time working, a lot of time having to recover, spending, you know, up to a year in rehab for some of these therapies to actually get any kind of an outcome. And then you might have to get a, a knee replacement within five years anyway. Um, and then from a, from a cost perspective, I mean, you know, these things have kind of spotty coverage in terms of insurance. I mean, it really just comes down to like, where do you live and who is your insurer? Um, and then, and then, um, you know, there's, there's enormous cost burden to the system. So, you know, the, the time is, is so right for a solution like what Nanocon is doing, which is that we've really thought about the patient. We've thought about how are we going to, actually address cartilage damage and actually have a better outcome for the like truly a better outcome for the patient but then we've also really thought uh, very specifically about how we're going to make this thing affordable and easy to access and that's that's really kind of the one-two punch of what we're doing i mean yes absolutely uh, it's very clear that people need better outcomes they need to be able to recover much quicker and so we're talking about you know mm -hmm. the nanocon approach people could potentially be fully recovered within two or three months rather than eight to 12 months. So you get to go back to your life relatively quickly, but then also something that actually really preserves those tissues in the joint actually stops the arthritic degeneration with a better high quality tissue. Um, and, and, and that's the key to, to real longevity. Because if you don't get the proper cartilage, one of the reasons why all these things have, have limited long-term outcomes is that if you don't get the right cartilage, the bone continues to undergo stress and it continues to degenerate. Uh, and that's the type of, Yes. Uh, to talk a, a little bit about, uh, before we go in, into that, and, and you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the side effects of, a, of an improper treatment, talk a little bit more about how you, when you came across this technology in your research, um, and, and what caused you to say, wow, this might be able to take me somewhere with cartilage? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, the the academic world has primarily been focused on a type of material called a hydrogel. And so um, collagen, which is the main natural component that makes up cartilage, is, is a hydrogel. There are also synthetic hydrogels. But basically, a hydrogel is a polymer material that really likes to take on water and kind of like a sponge swells with water. Actually, something that almost everybody's familiar with is, you know, those little toys you get when you're a kid, and it's like a dinosaur or something, and it'll be kind of like the size of a coin, and then you soak it in the sink, and it balloons up really big. That's actually, that's a hydrogel. Yep. That's a hydrogel. So there are these, these polymer materials that swell with water, and, you know, cartilage is a great example. I think cartilage is anywhere from 80 to 90% water. Um, so, mm. you know, there's, there's a whole class of materials, and for a very long time, researchers were just really focused on hydrogels, um, because it's the same, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of like a, like a simple logical through line, like cartilage is a hydrogel. So we should just be trying to grow, you know, grow stuff on hydrogels or make things out of hydrogels, but synthetic hydrogels and even collagen, um, it's very hard to get good, uh, bulk, what's called bulk properties. So that's like, if you actually have a big piece of this, how does it behave versus how do it, how does it behave as a thin film or like in the Petri dish when you're trying to grow cells on it. And, and that's mainly because, um, the structure of natural collagen that, that the chondrocytes build um, is extremely complex. It's, it's much more complex than... And the chondrocytes, just to go back, the chondrocytes, which I think may be mm-hmm. where you got the name nanocon, they're the, the, the little uh, cells, parts of our body that go in there and, and they may uh, form components or maybe rebuild some of the cartilage. Yeah, that's that's correct. So that, that is the name, the technical name for the type of cell that's existing within the cartilage. And they're sort of like a leftover of embryonic development. I mean, we could have a whole hour podcast just on mm-hmm. that. So I won't get too deep in that. But that's basically like why they exist. Um, because when a fetus is developing, the whole skeleton is is cartilage, essentially. And then it kind of calcifies mm. and turns into bone. And, and the chondrocytes are sort of what is left over um after especially after you grow and they can kind of maintain cartilage like in a very limited way like literally on like the the biological scale they can sort of like maintain the structure but they can't regrow like a millimeters or a centimeter size thing on their own so mm-hmm. um but basically um you know all of this research has been going into looking at hydrogels and trying to entice chondrocyte growth on hydrogels and uh, my co-founder and I were sort of sort of basically looking at alternative materials. I mean, we had really kind of, I, I would say, had like a more radical approach to all of the projects we were doing. It wasn't just um, specific to cartilage, but really kind of looking at, you know, really breaking it down and saying, what are we trying to accomplish when we try to design these materials or 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 design these structures and manufacture them? And are there like new and creative ways um, that we can try to address the issues? And so one of those was actually looking at like non, non-hydrogel materials for cartilage. And so basically saying, we're gonna look at materials that have the right mechanical properties um, in terms of those bulk properties, and then also have structures that mimetic the co- you know, mimic the collagen, but they don't have to be hydrogels. And so we started working with what's now the nanocon material, which is, which is basically a, a composite of a, of a couple different things, but uh, it's basically this, this uh, what's called a thermoplastic. So it's a, it's a plastic that melts at high temperatures. Um, you know, that's everything that's like a plastic part that's injection molded um, is, is almost usually a thermoplastic. So it's, it's definitely something that, um, you know, people have not really looked at for, for cartilage, but this particular composite, like I said, um, 
had cartilage matched mechanical properties. It actually did, it does kind of take on water again, not to the, the extent of a hydrogel, but it mm. will actually kind of so it'll take on water, it will soften. So it doesn't swell up, but it actually takes on cartilage properties. Um, and then we're 3D printing mm. it. And I think that's also a, a really unique element of what we're doing. And there are people that are also using 3D printing, but again, it's primarily to kind of like use these fancy machines to deposit materials that have cells in them to try to sort of like, you know, manufacture a, a living tissue. Whereas for us, 3D printing is a way for us to make this intricate structure that, that would be impossible to injection mold, but we can make it cheaply and easily because the type of 3D printing that uses a thermoplastic, mm. I mean, if you have a MakerBot or if you've ever worked with like a hobbyist machine, um, you know, a 3D printer that you could just buy off of Amazon and have on your desk. I mean, that's the type of technology we're using. We have a nicer version of that that can be used for high quality production, but it's the same technology. It's just a basically a robot head moves mm. around in space and squirts out hot plastics. So uh, that means that, um, you know, it informs this structure that cells really like to grow into. It's made of this material that's durable enough that, you know, as soon as you implant it, people can can be, you couldn't go out and play sports, but people can be walking on it and rehabbing right away rather than kind of waiting the traditional eight to 12 weeks. Um, and it very quickly gets tissue to regrow and it gets the body's own cells um, to actually repopulate and grow the cartilage where, you know, as I kind of talked about earlier, these existing high-end therapies, you know, you extract cells from the patient or you extract them from a cadaver tissue and you grow them in a lab somewhere, you kind of make this, this construct and then you provide that to the surgeon. Whereas we're saying we've got something that on its own can cause the body stone cells to repopulate. And that basically means that the, the implant is a, is a totally low cost off the shelf product. And that's really the big breakthrough. I think not just that we're just seeing much faster, much higher quality cartilage grow, but the fact that the implant is like this relatively affordable, easy to access implant. So, you know, to kind of like really walk through the the patient care continuum, let's say that you've got, you know, an advanced stage three, you know, osteochondral lesion, your doctor prescribes a cadaveric allograft. So you've just gone through, you know, probably a couple weeks of trying to get everything scheduled, getting into the doctor and getting imaged. And that's probably taken the doctor a week to follow up with you. So you've probably been trying to address your, your knee pain for about a month now. Uh, and then the doctor says, we're going to do cadaveric allograft. Uh, we're going to put you on the wait list. And it's, it's probably going to take, you know, four to eight months for us to get that graft. So mm -hmm. now you're walking around, you're probably on pain meds. Uh, you might be in a, if it's severe enough, you might be on crutches too. Um, because, because the doctors really don't want the damage to spread. And so they might actually recommend that you be in like an offloading brace and be on crutches. So you're trying to live your life. You can't exercise really hard to like have a social life. Maybe it's hard to even go to work. You're walking around on crutches. And then in, in eight months, this thing comes, they do the surgery, they put it in your knee. Uh, and then you basically go through a month long, uh, extensive rehab period, and then it's going to take probably six to seven months for you to be fully rehabbed. So at this point, you've been trying to address mm. this problem for what, almost, almost three years, potentially, uh, if, if the longest time stacks occur, I mean, that's, the, that's considered the gold standard today. Uh, and then on top of all of it, uh, it's going to be, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, close to, a you know, twenty-five to fifty thousand dollar cost um, because the surgery was expensive. You know, all of this rehab was expensive. The, getting the cadaver allograft is expensive, and your insurance probably covers it. But then you probably still have a copay. You know, you're probably looking at you know anywhere from six to ten thousand dollars out of pocket 
uh, to cover all this. I mean, this is this is nonsense. Like <laughs> this, and that's the standard of care now, right? Which every doctor uses as the primary way of addressing. I it. I wouldn't even say this is the standard of care. I would say this is the best option. You know, this this is like if you're like, okay, mm-hmm. okay, I'm really going to commit to doing this. I mean, the standard of care is really still, um, you know, I would say palliative care and then something that's called a, a microfracture surgery, um, which is a non-implantation approach to treating, treating these injuries. You know, it's a simple procedure, but a lot of people have stopped doing it because there's actually clinical data that shows that it makes arthritis worse. Um, so it, it's... It hurts me just hearing the name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's pretty nasty. And so it's also possible that if you're, if you're an allograft patient, you maybe had a, a failed microfracture prior to this too. And that would be, you know, sort of, again, you know, a couple month process to get diagnosed, you know, the microfracture can be done quickly, but then it's also like an eight month recovery time. Uh, and then it fails within one to two years because the, the arthritic degeneration of the bone persists. So um, yeah. And so that, that's another thing to think about too. If you're getting cadaveric allograft, you maybe already have had an additional surgery before this. Uh, and the cell therapy products are not much better. I mean, the only thing they really address is they kind of shorten that that time to treatment. So it usually takes two months to get the graft. So you kind of shave that three-year process maybe down to like, you know, two and a half or two years. But, you know, still all of this is, it's just such a mess. It's so hard for patients to to even get these treatments because because there's, there's such uh, inconsistent coverage. Uh, and it's also so hard to source them. Like the, it's just a huge bottleneck getting tissue. Um, and to give you a sense of like really how bad the bottleneck is, there's around 700,000 knee arthroscopies every year. So that's just arthroscopies on the knee on these people that are, you know, pre-knee replacement. There's maybe like 25,000, 25 to 30,000 uh, tissue and cell product um, treatments done a year. So that's all the different brands of cell therapy and cataphoric allograft added up. There's only like 30,000 procedures done a year in the U.S. So you've got mm-hmm. 700,000 patients that need treatment. You've got 30,000 of them actually getting treatment. So, I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's really the big problem we're, we're solving here. I mean, for for the patient, it's just being able to, to get treated quickly and, and knowing it's going to be reliable and knowing that you really are probably not going to have to have any treatment for ideally the rest of your life, but maybe it is one treatment. And then a couple decades later, you might need a knee replacement or you might need some, one of these other things. Uh, and for the surgeon, and I think this also can't be really understated for the surgeon, it's really the ability to just do a lot more cases. Um, you know, a good surgeon probably does 15 cataphoric allografts a year. When we've been out in the world talking to our potential customer, you know, talking to these, these sports medicine specialists, they all say that they think they could easily do like 200 or more nanocon procedures a year. So I think the, wow. The, yeah. So yeah. tell so, me, I mean, tell me a little bit about what happens in the operating room and, uh, mm-hmm. and then talk about the, the, the uh, clinicals that you've done on your uh, animals and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think you know, another thing we've really focused on is trying to make this arthroscopic. Um, and that's really important for the patient because, you know, arthroscopic surgery. And so for those that aren't, that aren't familiar with the term, I mean, this is basically a, a minimally invasive camera guided surgery. So instead of like opening the whole knee up and exposing the surface to try to make a repair or install an implant, the surgeon makes three small incisions, you know, anywhere from sub centimeter to like a couple centimeters. And so there's one for the camera. So, so, a you know, small 
uh, arthroscopic cameras inserted through one incision. There's another incision just for a saline port. So they like to pump saline through because it basically washes everything out of the joint as they're cutting stuff up and debriding things. And then the third, the third is what's called the working channel. And that's just for like where you're going to get instruments in, if you're going to like remove disease cartilage or if you're going to prep an area to receive an implant. So, you know, small incisions. Um, that's really good for the patient because it significantly limits the risk of infection. Um, so that's really important. Uh, and then the other, the other reason arthroscopy is good for the patient is because you're not disturbing all the muscles and the ligaments around the joint. So recovery is much easier. So, you know, these are the reasons why arthroscopy is always better for the patient. And then for surgeons, um, you know, it can be done in a more limited environment. So it can be done in almost always can be done in an uh, ambulatory surgery center rather than in a, in a full OR. And that, you know, reduces the cost and also, again, allows them to do these much more quickly because they can they can usually have their own oh. ASC or partner with an ASC. So it's much better for the surgeon as well. Uh, and basically, it, it's generally a pretty quick procedure. Like if you were going to have a microfracture done, that's like a 10 to 15 minute procedure. So the surgeon just basically makes the incisions for the, for the instruments. They do the procedure and then they close you up. Uh, it's pretty straightforward, you know, for, for allograft or cell therapy, that's where it gets a lot more complicated. Um, you know, allograft is not so hard to do because these allografts basically come as like a plug, basically like a big, like thimble size plug. And so they really are just coring out the hole and then popping, you know, mm. popping the, the plug in. That's not so hard. That's usually mm. like 20 to 30 minutes. Cause they just, th the one thing that is they have to have precise like machining of the hole. So if the hole doesn't mm. fit right with this thing that's made of bone and living cartilage, then it won't work. So usually it takes a little longer just because they have to prep the hole. Uh, but the cell therapy products are a lot more complicated. And that's because there's usually an element of fragility to those products. Um, you know, they're, they're either kind of like morsels or jellies or like films or things that are not as robust, even as like a piece of cartilage is. Uh, and so they usually have to be done open because it can be hard to get the uh, material into the joint. And so there are like some, mm. like, like the best surgeons in the world, like will do some of these things arthroscopically because they've like kind of developed and trialed and aired their own procedure, but it's not usually common practice. Um, and then also they require a, a, a fiber, what's called fibrin glue, which is basically a surgical adhesive. So it's like a biocompatible biodegradable glue. Um, and that can't be used wet. It basically has to be used in a dry environment. So you either mm. have to kind of like drain and dry the joint to try to like get the glue in there mm. or or most people are just like screw that i'm not spending the time and energy so then they just do an open procedure uh but then you have to wait for the glue to, glue to dry and so you know for the patient that means make, making uh recovery a lot more complicated and, and again for the surgeon you know these are these are time consuming complicated procedures comparatively speaking so they can they can only do less of them and i think the only reason why people haven't really been so vocal about it is because as i as i touched on there are all these bottlenecks with cost and logistics so it's not like you know surgeons aren't doing hundreds of cell therapy products a year and so they're not really like feeling that effect but all of them say that mm. if there's something that they're going to do a lot of they want it to be something that's fast and simple and so that's really where our implant also i think fits in well is kind of the third benefit is that you know, as I mentioned, we don't use hy a hydrogel, we use this kind of like more robust material, you know, it has complexity engineered into it, but that basically means that the implant is very easy to handle. So uh, we've done a bunch of these, these labs now, uh, training labs where surgeons have been able to open up the device. It's very flexible. So you can definitely like kind of grasp it or fold it or pinch it and just pop it through that working channel. 
and then also the, the surgeon can trim it um, to, to fit the defect. So if, if, you know, if they have an implant that's not the right size or if the defect is like really irregular and they don't want to just core it out as a, as a circle, you know, they can cut our implant and shape it. And so all of that just makes the process way easier for them. Um, and again, that's better for the patient because, you know, you're not under as long, you know, the infest infection risk goes down even lower. And then, you know, not having to go to an open procedure again means that your recovery is going to be shorter and much easier. So all, all of those things are just really, really adding a lot of value um, to, to the surgeon and to the patient. Excellent. So uh, you've, I know you've done some trials on rodents, goats, and horses. And uh, <laughs> yeah. talk about that a little bit and then uh, talk about your plans and then yeah. the investment proposition. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, um, any type of medical device or implant development is always one that's very iterative. And so... Um, I mean, the, the way you really need to do that um, and the way the FDA wants to see it done as well um, for eventual approvals uh, is, is through animal models. So, you know, our very first study was in rodents, as you said, and that was really just going from testing the material and testing some early prototypes in a Petri dish environment where, you know, you're basically just kind of growing one or two types of cells on it to actually seeing what a complex biological environment does and also to see if there's any like immune or safety risk. So, you know, the implant was very, very simple. It was basically just an effort to get material into the rodent's knee. Um, but basically what we, what we showed is that um, I think really inter interestingly, the material actually doesn't elicit any type of foreign body or rejection. So even, even things that are used today will initially have some sort of response from the immune system or from the body where they say, hey, this is a foreign material, we're going to start to break it down or wall it off or encapsulate it. And that could be a normal process of tissue rebuilding. But what we, I think what we've shown is that if you don't have that happen at all, you just get immediate in growth. And so we get really, really rapid cell migration into the implant and onto the material. And then you get this regeneration happening a lot more quickly. And then in the rodent study, we also showed that you do get both bone and cartilage. So that's really important for kind of, you know, proper healing is that the bone bonds to it in the right way. But then also you do get this cartilage start to develop. So with that data, mm -hmm. we went out and got um, federal funding, which again is very typical for these early stage device companies. It, it usually takes many years before you have de-risked enough to bring on investors, right? So the next, the next step was we got larger federal funding to do this GOAT study. And that was really like, okay, we've got, you know, a version of the device that we think we can carry through into humans. We've got a version of a surgical procedure, which is probably what the human procedure will be like, but we're really still trying to understand, like, does this even work at all in the way we, we think it will? And, you know, large animals are important because, you know, the mechanical loading on the joint, that's an important part of, of how healing happens. And so it's important to model that uh, in this particular application. So that's why we had to go to a larger animal. Uh, and that was the study where we really showed that you do get highland cartilage. So it was a, a study that went out longer than the, the, the rodent study. You're also in this large animal that has a, a larger joint, is putting weight on it. Uh, and we showed that, yeah, you get the right type of cartilage and it grows really fast. So that was the second study. And then the third study, as you said, was horses. And this has really been our, I guess what I would, I would qualify as our like true efficacy study. So you know, we worked pretty extensively with, um, you know, the, the veterinary group that did the study for us. They actually are horse sports medicine surgeons. So they are surgeons. They're not just like a, like a testing company. Yeah. Um, and then also we worked pretty closely with human clinicians to get feedback. And so this is where we sort of designed a truly arthroscopic approach. You know, all the surgeries on the horses were done as an arthroscopy. 
um, you know, kind of with a perfected delivery. Um, and then I think the other thing that's really important is this is also a study where it's like we're doing a, a you know, the hor a horse is very large and heavy. So it's kind of become a, a popular kind of like de-risking study for these types of things going into humans because, because it's, it truly is weight and stress that will actually show like, is this thing going to fail in humans or not? Um, and then the other thing that's really important about the horse study and why the horse model, I, I think, can, can be really um, important is that horses will actually develop arthritis. So it's always kind of been a blind spot of goats and sheep, which have been the more traditional, you know, pre-human model the FDA wants to see, is that, yes, you can create a, a big defect in the cartilage and see if cartilage grows, and you can show it's better than the control, but they don't really get arthritic degeneration. Horses develop arthritis. Mm. So if you create these defects, they will get arthritis if they're not adequately treated. And so in the horse study, we've got a nanocon treatment group and we've got a microfracture group, you know, as, as I, and I want to kind of go back to that because I mentioned early on that, you know, one of the reasons why microfracture and even some of these other treatments don't last a long time, it's not because the cartilage wears out again, it's because the bone continues to degenerate. And so in this horse- Well, also you're compromising the structural integrity anytime you're deliberately breaking something, right? I mean, they, yeah. this is designed <laughs> to be solid, not to fractures in it. And then, you know, to heal it, you're breaking it. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. And and the horse, you know, the horse is just a much higher stress environment. And so in the horse study that we did, the microfracture group actually saw arthritic degeneration. It saw the same type of arthritic degeneration that makes microfracture and other things lead to knee replacement later on. Um, and that's really critical because in the nanocon group, we did not see that at all. So in addition to seeing nice cartilage, you know, confirming mm. that this is getting cartilage, that it's integrating properly, we also show that the bone is totally normal. And that really is the key to really showing real efficacy. And so I think that this flows well into your other statement or question, which was now talk about Nanocon as an investment. You know, in the past, a lot of people have tried to develop things for, for this type of cartilage treatment. And there certainly have been people that have tried biomaterials. As I mentioned, a lot of them have focused on hydrogels. But I think the, the important distinction is that, you know, a lot of people kind of kind of did quick animal studies or they, or they maybe did like a sheep study or something and they showed, Oh, we get cartilage and they raised a bunch of money and they tried to do it in humans and it didn't work in humans. Um, because once you get into humans, it's all about showing does pain reduce or not. And if pain doesn't reduce, it's because you didn't protect the bone. That's, that's ultimately what is causing mm -hmm. people pain. It's the stress to the bone and it's changes in the bone. The cartilage actually feels no pain. So if you don't preserve the bone, you're going to have pain and there's going to be no effect. We've now shown in the state-of-the-art animal model, which is the horse, where you actually do get this bone degeneration, which is indicative of what happens to people, we stop that from happening. And so I think that is really the key. You know, why, why is this the right time, not just in, in the market? I think, I, did a, I think I did a very thorough job of telling why this is the a great time clinically and in the market, because the problem's never been bigger. There's, there's still no good options for people and, and surgeons are, are desperate for better solutions. But when people say, how do you know this is going to work when so many other things have not worked? It's because we showed that. I don't know of anyone who's shown that, including things that are on the market today um, that did not show this type of bone preservation. And so I think, you know, for people that are thinking about investing, you know, this is a, a tremendously de-risked technology and it, and it is ready to go in humans. That's what we are raising to do now. I mean, we are planning on going to a human trial, you know, early to mid next year. So that's what money will be going to support. 
Uh, and then in terms of the investment opportunity, there's really two reasons why people should consider it. I mean, one is just the ability to get a, a phenomenal return. Um, you know, we've run a, a variety of calculations for, through a number of scenarios. And, and basically, with the type of exit we're expecting in the time frame we're expecting, uh, investors can expect around a 30x. And, you know, if you ask anybody who... Well, before you, excuse me for a second. <laughs> and by, by the way, yeah. no guarantees from the management, me or anyone else. But uh, talk a little bit about the addressable market. I know it's in the billions of dollars in just the name. Yeah. And there's other things that potentially your product could be used for. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so the, the, you're right. The first application, the indication we're pursuing is in the knee. Uh, that's a $2 billion market in the US annually. So that's just the knee. That's just the first product. Um, but treating the same the same types of injuries and in other joints would be like kind of the next no-brainer application because these these same types of large lesions also occur in other large joints. So they they occur in the in the hip, the ankle, and the shoulder very frequently. And so we've estimated that's close to a four billion dollar market annually. Uh, and then because the technology is is so adaptable and scalable. Um, meaning not just we can do higher volumes, but we can actually do much larger, like literal volumes. So we can make larger implants. Um, we think we, that we could treat soft tissue damage all throughout the body. So when you start to think about, you know, applications in cranium axillofacial surgery, um, if, if you start to think about the spine as well, you know, degenerative disc disease is a very similar problem. And then also plastic surgery. Um, you know, there could even be applications there. And so we think that there's probably a $10 billion opportunity for the technology as a platform. And that's again, just annually and just in the US. So, you know, really, really, really big opportunity for, for this technology to really make a big impact. That's great. So um, you've, you've done such a good job going over your history and uh, the nature of the problem, how you've addressed it, uh, as well as uh, the, the global market. And um, I, Really, really appreciate the time you spent doing this. Uh, I know that that um, you're you're going to be successful carrying this through uh, because of your determination and and uh, the great team that you've built as well. And and we haven't talked about those, but maybe that that'll be episode two. Um, <laughs> but um, I I really appreciate your time. Uh, you know, to summarize, and uh, do, do you have a website or uh, something that people can go look at and find out more about your your company? Yeah, doctors, investors, potential employees. <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's very straightforward. Our website is just www.nanocon.com. Uh, and I'm sure you'll put the link in the description, but that's spelled N-A-N-O-C-H-O-N -N -O -O for anyone who's listening. Um, yeah, and there's, uh, you know, information about the market, about the technology, uh, you know, information for investors, information for surgeons, uh, and information for patients. So uh, it's a great resource. Um, also, if you're on LinkedIn, uh, you know, we have a pretty active uh, LinkedIn page. We're always posting updates there. So another great way to kind of follow new, you know, news and progress about us. Terrific. Well, thanks again for your time. Uh, we really appreciate it and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon and following the massive success of this company and the other things that you do. Take care and have Thank a you beautiful for, day of life. Thank you very much, Stephen, Sam, you, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. My pleasure. Take care.